morning, church. Let's begin with a word of prayer. truly blessed to be your children, to have participated this morning in, in both of these blessed or ordinances, to have seen pictures of the gospel of Christ, and to have been reminded of our own deadness and sin, and your acting upon our spiritual corpses, your bringing us to life, and joy in Christ, and spiritual food that we have been sustained with in Christ, the great joy that is ours to know you through him, so many wonderful reminders that we have we've partaken in this morning as we've worshipped you, and, and now we come to this part of our worship wherein we are able to open your word, and we're so grateful, we acknowledge to you that we need your Holy Spirit to help us. And so we pray that as we read a text that on its surface may seem somewhat obscure, that you would grant us eyes to see and hearts that are eager to devour what we find. Minds that are able to understand and wills that are eager to apply the truth. Father, we thank you for our great high priest who has ushered us into your presence. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6. When God created the world, He was the first one ever to engage in meaningful work. He was the first one ever to know what it is like to, to do something meaningful. And when He created man in His image, He hardwired us to desire that same thing, to desire meaningful work. He provided a a forum for that, an atmosphere for that in Genesis chapter 2 as he placed man in, in the garden of God and gave him the task of, of keeping that garden. And so what, what a magnificent thing that must have been, to have been Adam, the first man in the garden of God, created in the image of God, perfectly reflecting the character of God, only doing things that please God, and in every act of work he did, he could sense the pleasure of God. Can you imagine such a thing? Must have been wonderful. Fulfilling the mandate that God had given him as an image bearer, doing meaningful work. The problem, of course, is that Genesis 3 came along and 
man rejected God's design. And yet, even though sin came into the world and the fall became the reality of human existence and the world's existence, man is still wired to desire meaningful work, but he has denied the context wherein that is possible, which is fellowship with God. He's separated from God, yet he still wants to do something meaningful, but he can't. And I would suggest to you that that is what is behind a phenomenon in our culture, this phenomenon of finding an, an, an identity, meaning in career. And so we, we tend to preach to young people in our culture, look, you've got to find a career either about which you are passionate or a career that is going to handsomely reward you materially. And the holy grail would be to find a vocation about which you are passionate and which pays well. Some people find both. But when they find both, after a time, they, they realize that, that both of those components, doing something that they're passionate about and that pays well, neither one of those things end up being truly rewarding. It's just not enough. Because it's, it, it isn't in the context in which it's supposed to work, which is in fellowship with God. And so people will either change careers or they search for meaning in, in work outside their vocation, perhaps a hobby or volunteering. There's just something is missing, even though they found that holy grail. And Christians, of course, we've been reconciled to God. We're no longer separated from God. We're able to enjoy fellowship with Him. And yet, since we are not completely sanctified, and since we live in this culture that preaches all of these alternative ways of finding fulfillment and meaning, even we can fall into the trap of looking for identity and fulfillment in other forms of meaningful work, whether that's being a CEO in a company or, or being a stay-at-home mother. And even we can find ourselves thinking or saying, I, I'm a Christian, but something is missing in my work. I, I do nothing that matters, nothing truly rewarding, nothing truly meaningful. The, the text that we are about to read helps to refocus our attention on the work that is the reward of the Christian life. There is absolutely nothing wrong with having a career, having temporal goals, etc., but for the Christian, there is a particular identity and work assigned to us within the appropriate context, within fellowship with God. That identity, that work is that we are a kingdom of priests tasked with offering sacrifices to the Lord. And it is only when we are given to that that we will find the temporal fulfillment for which we long until the Lord comes. Now, we have quite a bit of ground to cover this morning, almost two whole chapters. And if we take time this morning to make any meaningful application, we need to maximize our first reading. We need to pick up as much as we can in our first reading. So I have two tasks for you. Hopefully you found your place there. So stand with, with me as we're about to read. I'm going to give you two tasks. 
as we read, two things to look for. First of all, as we read, consider this question. Does this section, which is going to be 6-8 through the end of chapter 7, so, we, so we've got some plowing to do. Does this seem to be completely new material or does it address concepts or rituals that we've already seen? Okay, so that's the first thing that we're looking for. Does it seem to be completely new material or is, does it address concepts and rituals that we have already seen? Second thing to look for is who seems to be the primary focus? Is it the priests or the people of Israel? Who seems to be the primary focus? The priests or the people of Israel? All right, let's begin reading. Leviticus chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen garment undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar, and one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering, and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat it, as decreed forever throughout your generations, from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his sons shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour, as a, grain off, as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned it shall not be eaten. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash Wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place, and the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, 
that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned with fire. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. And all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If, he's, if he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for his thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity." Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat, shall, may eat flesh, but the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or an unclean detestable creature, and then eat some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, You shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat. The fat of an animal that dies of itself and the fat of one that is torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord, shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood whatever, whether of fowl or of animal, in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. The Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring the, bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. 
The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to priest, the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your priest offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their, their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. You may be seated. So, was that completely new material or was it familiar territory? This was familiar, right? We saw a lot of, com- of, of material concepts that we had already seen. There were sacrifices that we have already studied in chapters 1 through 5. Of course, we relabeled some of those to highlight the function of those sacrifices, but we saw again in in these two chapters, we saw the burnt offering or what we called the ascension offering. We saw the grain offering or the tribute offering is what we called it, the peace offering, the sin offering, and then the guilt offering or restitution offering. Now, why replow that ground? Why talk about all of those offerings again? Well, for the most part, chapters 1 through 5 gave instructions for the benefit of the worshiper, telling the worshiper what kind of animal they needed to bring and what condition that animal needed to be in in order to bring it before the Lord. This is what you as the worshiper needs to know for these offerings. In chapters 6 and 7, you probably noticed that the focus was on the priests, their work and their reward for their work. And what is their work? If we were to boil everything down and try to come up with one concept, what is it essentially that the priests do? They facilitate the worship of the people. They facilitate the worship of the people. And these chapters provide the priests with what they need to know about that, about the work itself and the reward of that work. And it's all about that. It's all about the work and the reward of the priesthood. And there are a couple of major themes in this section that carry over into our lives in Christ. Those two themes are going to be our major points this morning. The first of those is that the work of the priesthood is most holy. The work of the priesthood is most holy. Three aspects of these chapters point to that idea that the work of the priesthood is most holy. Three aspects point to that. First of all, the work of the priesthood is work. Everything in these chapters point to the fact that that these men are doing work. This is night and day 
work. This is not a nine-to-fiver. This is a, this is a life calling. We could look at just the section on the ascension offering. Back at the very first thing that we looked at, chapter six, verses eight through thirteen. We're not going to read it again. We don't have time. But you'll recall, you can just scan through those verses. The fire of the ascension offering, that altar, that the fire on that altar, it has to be kept burning all the time, night and day, because there is a morning ascension offering that has to be brought on behalf of all the people, and there's an evening ascension offering that has to be brought on the behalf of all the people, in addition to all of the ascension offerings brought on behalf of individuals throughout the day. And so the priests are responsible for heaving that wood up on the altar and arranging it all day long, and then heaving the individual pieces of animal on that altar all day long. You'll recall from those original chapters, chapter 1, who's responsible for cutting that animal up? The worshiper, but the priest puts those animals up on the altar. And that's work, they're doing it all day. We saw at the the beginning of chapter 6 that the priests are responsible for taking care of all those ashes. All those animals are being reduced to ash. And so every day they're, they're taking that ash outside the camp to a clean place and they're making sure that that altar is cleansed. Now that's just one offering that we're talking about. But this is work and it's work all the time. It's not nine to five. Secondly, this is work facilitating the worship of others. It's work facilitating the worship of others. Only four verses out of the 61 that we just read, only four of them pertain to the priest's own offerings. The priest's own offerings were outlined for us in chapter 6, verses 19 through 22. The bulk of the rest of everything that we just read pertained to the priest's handling of offerings brought by other people. The priest's function is to to mediate, to facilitate this ritual conversation that the people are having with God through these offerings. So the offerings of approach by which the the people's guilt is cleansed and atonement is made. The priests, they are uniquely set apart for that work. The people can't do that for themselves. They're not allowed. If they try, they'll die. The offerings of abiding, the the, the offerings whereby the people express devotion, praise, thanksgiving, rejoicing, fellowship with God. The priests are uniquely set apart for that work. The people are not able to do that for themselves. If they try to do it, they'll die. The priest's work facilitates the worship of others. The whole section testifies to that. Thirdly, This work facilitating the the, the worship of others, it is holy work. It is holy work. And there are are three ways that that is reflected. First of all, the fact that it is holy is reflected in that it requires handling and eating holy things in holy places. It requires handling and eating holy things in holy places. Can you imagine such a thing? The priests handle and eat a portion of the tribute offering. Remember, that's, the, that's the, the, the baked goods and sometimes raw grain of which the Lord says in 6.17, it is a most holy thing. In, 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 in the Hebrew language it says, it is a holy of holy things. 
priests handle and eat the sin offering of which the Lord says in 625, it is most holy. The priests handle and eat of the restitution offering of which the Lord says in 7.1 and 7.6, it is most holy. And in each of those cases, the priest's portion of that holy thing has to be eaten in a holy place. They can't take it home. They have to eat it in a holy place, which is the enclosure of the tent of meeting. They have to eat it at God's house. They can't take it home. It's remarkable. And it makes sense then that secondly, this holy work requires holiness. They have to be holy in order to do this, this holy work. It requires holiness. And we see this explicitly with the tribute offering and the sin offering. I would argue that it's implied with all of the other offerings. Look with me at 6.18. Again, 6.18. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. Whatever touches them shall become holy. Now that, that, that last part there is more literally, all that touches them shall be holy. And commentators will take that in two different ways. One is, is just how the ESV renders it, and that's a fine way to render it. There, there's some ambiguity in the text. Another way to, to understand it is, in order to touch it, you must be holy. And based upon everything that we find in the Old Testament about clean and unclean things, holy and unholy things, I'm inclined to under, understand it the second way. In order to touch it, you have to be holy because we find multiple instances in the Old Testament of people touching holy things and dying instantly. In other words, holiness isn't universally contagious, but unholiness will get you killed when you touch holy things. At any rate, either way, either way that we take that, whether touching the holy thing makes one holy or if it must be holy in order to touch it, it could be said that holiness is associated with handling these things. Either way, when you handle these things, you are holy at the end of the day. We see the same thing with the sin offering. So that was with the, the tribute offering, also with the sin offering. We're told the same thing in Leviticus 6, 27 and 28. The holiness of the work is also demonstrated in that it requires precision. It requires precision. There's an exact way to do all of this stuff. In, in chapters 1 through 5, th there was also precision. The people were responsible for bringing the right kind of animal, and it had to be an unblemished animal. It had to be the right gender. The priests, though, they, they are responsible for offering that thing correctly. Same parts of the animal are not all offered up in smoke across all of the offerings. Some of them are offered up in smoke in one offering. In other offerings, the whole thing is offered. The ascension offering, everything's offered up in smoke. If you do that with a sin offering, you're going to be in deep trouble, like deadly trouble. If you don't, we're going to find out in, in chapter 10, if, you don't, if the priests don't eat the sin offering, that's deadly to them. You've got to get this right. It's a matter of life and death. That's what, that's what I mean when I say this is precision work. You've got to get this right. And that speaks to the holiness of the work. Chapter 10. Wait till we get to chapter 10. We're going to see the grave consequences of lax attention to detail. Very serious work. It is holy work. There's nothing mundane about facilitating fellowship 
between God and man. Now, we've, we've noted here and there in this series so far, of course, that we are not under the old covenant. We, we are not Jews. Even if we were Jews, we would not be under the old covenant. The old covenant is obsolete, according to the author of Hebrews. We are partakers of the new covenant in Christ's blood, and yet we find in the New Testament that elements of the old covenant picture or forecast elements of the new covenant in Christ's blood. And that definitely is the case with many things that we find here in the book of Leviticus. In the new covenant, the new covenant, the priesthood, and many of the things that we've just read about, the priesthood is not a special class of servants. There's not just a few of us in the church that we might think of as like the priests, but all believers are priests in the new covenant. Isn't that awesome? It's very, very, very significant. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This was read for us already this morning by Pastor Michael. I'm going to read just a couple of sections of it to you again. First Peter 2. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. He's, he's talking, and this is significant. This is Peter talking not, not to Jew, Jewish Christians. He's talking to Gentile Christians, which really drives the point home. He says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he jumps down. If we jump down a couple of verses, we read this. He comes back to those same concepts. He says, you, Gentile church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So, whereas the priesthood was, under the, old co- under the Old Covenant, at one time a subset of the people of God, now it's the totality of the people of God, composed of all believing Jews and Gentiles. And so you and I, if we have repented of our sin and trusted in the atoning work of Christ, you and I, e- even these newbies that just got baptized, all of us, priests in the kingdom of God. Is that magnificent? And we, therefore, offer to God sacrifices to Him through Christ. And what are these sacrifices? We've had opportunity in recent weeks to consider these concepts. It's really important now to think of these things again as we think of ourselves as priests We offer sacrifices in a couple of main ways. The first of these is that we pursue holiness. We pursue holiness. We've looked at Romans 12.1 in recent weeks. We'll look at it again because this is great language where Paul is pulling directly from the Old Testament. This is Levitical language, Romans 12.1 again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, those of us who are rah-rah about the gospel, which we should be, we might think, why do we need to offer sacrifices if Christ was our sacrifice? Fantastic question. The New Testament uses 
that Old Testament imagery surrounding the tabernacle uses it in multiple ways. And so, yes, Christ atones for us, cleanses us once for all from our sin. But the New Testament also uses that Old Covenant imagery to characterize our New Covenant worship in sacrificial terms. And this is not contradictory. It's not contradictory at all. The the early chapters of the book of Romans finds Paul exhaustively addressing the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work to redeem those who believe. And then Paul, same author in Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, that is, because of what Christ has sufficiently done for you to reconcile you to God, because of that, now you offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And, and what follows then from Romans 12.1 on is a call to holy living. You offer your life to God as a living sacrifice. Holy living is so tightly bound to saving faith in the finished work of Christ that those who do not pursue personal holiness give evidence that they actually haven't trusted in Christ's atoning work. That's how how these things work together in the New Testament. The pursuit of holiness is actually evidence that we've trusted in Christ to save us from our sin. And so we read the New Testament authors teaching us repeatedly that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. They teach us that. And those same authors then immediately follow it with, so then pursue holiness in Christ. You're saved by faith in Christ. So then live like Christ. Same guys saying the same things. And so the author of Hebrews who is huge on Jesus as the sufficient sacrifice for us, that same guy writes in Hebrews 12.14, strive for peace and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Remarkable, right? He's got those two things side by side. You are saved sufficiently by Christ and pursue holiness. Another example of this is in 2 Timothy 2.20. Where, where Paul, again, is using, using some, some, some language from Old Testament sacrificial pictures. He writes this, 2 Timothy 2.20, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now again, this is the Paul who says that Christ sufficiently saves you and cleanses you from your sins. And then he says, hey, cleanse yourself so that you're more useful to the Lord in His work. And that passage, 2 Timothy 2 20 and 22, coupling this this idea of pursuing personal holiness in order to be more useful to ministry leads to a second way that we offer sacrifices as New Testament priests. We offer sacrifices as New Testament priests not only by pursuing holiness, but also by pursuing ministry. So we pursue holiness and we pursue ministry. And there are a jillion passages that we could look at in the New Testament. For this, we have already looked at 1 Peter 2.9 this morning. I'll just remind you that 
1 Peter 2, 9 tells us that, hey, as, as New Testament priests, our job is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Well, to what end? Well, the New Testament authors are only too happy to tell us to what end. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about our, our ministry of reconciliation, whereby we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others become worshipers of God. They are reconciled to God just like we were, so that they too worship Him. So that's one, one reason that we proclaim the excellencies of Him. Another reason that we proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light is so that those who are already worshipers would become even greater worshipers of Him. They become more like Jesus Christ. They become more zealous for Him. And we find that in places like Ephesians chapter 4 where, where Paul teaches about our ministering the truth to one another and using our gifts in one another's lives to help each other grow in Christ. In, in other words, like the priests of old, we work to facilitate the worship of others. We, we work to see the lost become saved worshipers of God and we work to see the saved grow in their worship of God through sanctification. And those two aspects of the work, pursuing holiness and pursuing ministry, these are not things that we should think of as completely separated, like they're in two different rooms of our lives, but they actually work together. We've talked about this occasionally. Our pursuing holiness actually makes our pursuing ministry more potent. Because the more holy we become, the more that we become like Jesus, the more legit this becomes. The more that I'm like Jesus, then the more when I say, hey, Jesus is the real deal, people say, well, yeah, he must be. You see how that works? So the less I'm like Jesus, the less I'm like Jesus, the more people are going to say, like, oh, that doesn't work. So I, actually, I have to marry the two. And so I have to see this, my pursuing holiness, as serving this. And the wonderful thing, God is so wise. The wonderful thing is that this actually serves this too. Serving other people, ministry, actually ends up stirring me up in my pursuit for holiness. Magnificent. I couldn't have figured that out. I wouldn't have made it that way. And listen, your work is holy work. So, some of us conceive of our, our, our vocations as, as our calling in life. What I've been talking about for the last three, four minutes, this is your calling as a believer. To pursue Christ's likeness, to help others find salvation, and to pursue Christ's likeness to help others reach maturity in Him. That's your life calling. Your life's calling, and listen to me very carefully, your life's calling is not to be a nurse or to be a doctor or a plumber or even a stay-at-home mother. That's not your life's calling. It's not to be an engineer or a first responder. Your life's calling is something that takes place within those arenas. And those arenas are important. They are not your life's calling. Your life's calling is the holy work of pursuing holiness and seeing other people become believers who become mature in Christ. And so we all have the same life's calling. All of us. We just all do it in different places. It's holy work. It is holy work. The work of the priesthood is most holy. Now, there's a second theme presented by this section. And that, that theme is 
that the reward of the priesthood is most blessed. The reward of the priesthood is most blessed. Now, I mentioned earlier of the priests that this, this is night and day work. This is not a nine-to-fiver. Uh, that's also true of us, by the way, as, as New Testament priests, not a nine-to-fiver. Their job, not a nine-to-fiver. It's a life calling. How do you compensate for somebody for something like that? Because it's not like you punch a clock. You can't quantify the hours. How do you compensate somebody for something like that? Well, there are a couple of ways that the priests are compensated for their work. And first of all, we see, and this is throughout the section, we see that the priests are actually physically sustained by the rewards of their work. They are physically sustained by the rewards of their work. If you read the whole section carefully, you find that the priests receive some portion of every offering brought by a layperson. They receive some portion of every offering brought by someone else. The skin of the ascension offering goes to the priests. A small portion of the tribute offering is offered up in smoke on the altar. A small portion of that goes, goes up in smoke to the Lord. The rest of it goes to the priests. The meat of the sin offering and the restitution offerings, that goes to the priests. The breast and the right thigh of the, of the peace offering. Remember the peace offering is the one that the people get to join in. That's, the, that's, that's like the fellowship meal between everybody. Well, the priests even get part of that. The, the, the people get most of it. But the priests get the breast and the right thigh. In other words, they benefit from every offering they offer on behalf of others. That's how they're sustained. Now the offerings that they bring, their own offerings, those get burned up completely. They, they, don't, they don't get a stitch of that. But everything that they offer on behalf of other people, they get something from that. Even, listen, even the, even the section that was addressed specifically to the people. You may have noticed as we went, as we went down, there were the, the sections were broken up, and the Lord said to Moses, say this to the sons of Aaron. And the Lord said to Moses, say, say this to the sons of Aaron. Most of the sections said that. Toward the end, there were two that said, say this to the people. Even those at the end, where the Lord wants something to be said to the people, even those at the end were about making sure that the priests get theirs. Here's an example. Look down at Leviticus 7.34. This is what the Lord wants the people to know. Leviticus 7.34 For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel from the day that He anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. Repeatedly, in each section, the Lord makes sure He delineates what belongs to the priests so that they are sustained by their work in facilitating the worship of others. So they, they are physically sustained by the rewards of their work. Secondly, the, the priests are blessed in that the work itself is blessed. The work itself is blessed. So not, not long ago, seeking counsel from, from a professor about the possibility of my pursuing a, a somewhat rigorous course of equipping as a Bible student. And I was asking him, what, what is the best reason, if any, for a pastor to, to do this? 
because it's a, it's, a, it's a long commitment. And, and he said to me, the work is the reward. The work is the reward. And for the priests, in, in the largest sense, that was the case. The work is the reward. What, what, what a tremendous privilege. What a tremendous life to stand in holy places, touch holy things, eat holy food offered to God. What an amazing thing to be the ones facilitating conversations of worship between people made in God's image and those who made them. You know, the priests did not receive an inheritance in the land, along with the other tribes in Israel when they came to the land in the book of Joshua. What was, what was the plan for them? We read about what God's plan was for them in Numbers 18.20, where the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. See, for, for the priests... Their reward was the Lord and serving Him. That was the great thing for them. Everybody else gets real estate. The priests get God in handling holy things and facilitating worship. What an amazing thing. And you know, you know what is fantastic? We go over to, to Psalm 16. We find David, who was of what tribe? He was of the tribe of Judah. He uses priestly language. He uses Levitical language saying of the Lord, the Lord is my portion. In, in other words, what he's saying is, even though I'm of the tribe of Judah, oh Lord, you're the inheritance that I want. And, and that's what everybody in Israel should have been saying. No, no. Oh, to be a Levite and to do the things that they do. Oh, to stand in holy places and touch holy things and eat holy food offered to God. Oh, to be a Levite. Now, brothers and sisters, in our work as a kingdom of priests, our work is blessed. And it's blessed in at least a couple of ways. First of all, we enjoy temporal blessings. We enjoy temporal blessings. Remember the two kinds of sacrifices that we offer as New Testament priests. First of all, we, we pursue holiness and then we pursue ministry. And there are temporal rewards associated with both of those. There is joy and peace that comes in this life from pursuing holiness. There, there is quite literally joy and peace that comes from pursuing, pursuing holiness. To pursue holiness is synonymous with pursuing Christ-likeness. And joy and peace are just two aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians chapter 5. Become more like Jesus. I just, I just, just do this. Just try it, okay? Become more like Jesus and see if you don't enjoy more joy and peace. It can't not happen. Ask Paul. That's what he's saying there in, in, in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit of Christ inside of you, what he pumps out as we become more like Jesus, is more Jesus. And oh, my soul, what happiness there would be if we were more like Jesus. Can you imagine 
what it would be like to love like Jesus, to, to have joy like Jesus, peace like Jesus, patience like Jesus, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control like Jesus. Would you ever have another miserable day? What a kindness of the Lord to desire for us that we would be like Christ. You know, this is, this is work. Pursuing, pursuing holiness is work. But do you see why we would say that the work is the reward? The work is the reward. As we strive for holiness, the holiness that He gives us in that work, it is the reward. Oh, to be like Jesus. Similarly, the work of ministry is its own reward. You know, one of my, one of my favorite verses has taken on a completely different light in the context of these chapters that I've studied this week. You think about the priests eating the offerings that they brought. They're eating the food of the offerings that they're offering on behalf of, the, of others. They're rewarded by that work. And now think about Jesus saying, this is one of my favorites. Think about Jesus saying in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. What, what, what a blessed connection. And, and what a wonderful example for us in, in our Lord Jesus as He is sustained by serving His Father. And that's an example that we see in the lives of those who give themselves to the work of the Lord. I was contacted recently by one of our biblical counselors informing me that she had wrapped up a couple of counseling relationships. And in, in both cases, the counselees were helped. But the counselor, the counselor said, both experiences were tremendous blessings to me. We don't pay these people. <laughs> and that, that tends to happen. I mean, it, it, it can happen, obviously, in less formal ministering to one another, but it, it, it happens quite a bit in, in counseling because it's a more formal relationship, and so it's, it can be more obvious. But essentially, you, you minister the Word to someone, you help them apply the Word to their lives, you help them grow in Christ's likeness. You help them kill idols. Help them grow in worship. Help them in any number of ways. And in one sense, it is work. I mean, you, you, you are applying energy to a task. In another sense, much of the time, it, it's almost like you're just in the room as the Lord is working in someone's life in obvious ways. And then you just realize the Lord has just changed somebody and He used you. It's tremendously humbling because you know that you can't change people. And it's tremendously faith-building because you saw God do something that you know you can't do. It's awe-inspiring. It's joy-inducing. It's, it's a lot of other hyphenated phrases that just mean it's all rewarding. It's the work is the reward. The work is the reward. And let, me, let me read to you a couple of excerpts from Colossians 1, 24 through 29, and I would suggest to you that this is Paul saying that the work is the reward. Colossians 1, 24 through 29, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. We could stop right there, and I would say that that's Paul saying the work is the reward, but we'll continue. He's going to tell us what the, what the work is. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church of which I became a minister. I'm skipping down a verse here. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
for this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. So he talks about the work. He talks about striving. It sounds like hard work. And the work is presenting others mature in Christ. But at the very beginning there, he says, I rejoice in this. And he talks about it in terms of suffering. It's not easy. It's hard. But he rejoices in it. Why? Because the work is the reward for those who love Christ. It's magnificent to participate with Him as He transforms people. There are temporal blessings in that Christ-like and ministry are their own rewards. The good news is that there are also eternal blessings. There are also eternal blessings. Just do a New Testament search on the word reward and you'll find Jesus more than anyone else talking about the concept of eternal rewards for the work of ministry. What exactly is the reward? We could spend a lot of time talking about that. I'll, I'll broad brush this a little bit. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 gives us something of a clue. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 reads, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You'll receive the inheritance. That inheritance we've talked about many times in 1 Peter 1, 3 and following. It's this, these these Glorious, imperishable inheritance waiting for us in heaven. We could go to many other, other, other passages. We're running out of time. But, but, but putting all these other passages together, I would say that the great reward is worshiping in the very presence of God, worshiping Him in His presence eternally with those whom the Lord has brought to Himself through your priesthood. Now, we saw this back in 1 Thessalonians. We saw it. What was it that Paul wanted so badly? This is, this is going back maybe two years. What was it that Paul wanted so badly? He, it wasn't decisions to follow Christ, but he wanted people to, to cross the finish line with him and, and enter glory with him. Listen to these outrageous words from Paul in Thessalonians 2.19. He says, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord at His coming? He says, Is it not you? He's saying this to the Thessalonians. My crown, my reward at the coming of Christ is that you will cross the finish line with me. And and, and he he alluded to that in Colossians 1.29 when he said that we proclaim Christ that we may present everyone mature in Him. That word present, essentially, a very literal rendering of it is stand beside mature in Christ. And what he has in mind is we proclaim Christ that we might stand beside them in glory with this person, mature. And that's why he says, I rejoice in my sufferings on your behalf. So I want you standing with me as I study these things this morning. Knowing the baptisms that were coming, I thought of Dan Harris, one of, our, one of our deacons. Dan Knowlton was, was baptized this morning. And Dan Harris has been discipling Dan Knowlton, investing time in his life. And I, I thought, you know, what kind of reward is, is Dan Harris looking for, for, for the time that he's invested in Dan Knowlton's life? He's looking for a paycheck. I know Dan Harris. He's not looking for a paycheck. I think that Dan Harris, what Dan Harris has to look forward to is standing before the king, his arms around Dan Knowlton, 
awestruck that the Lord used him to bring Dan Knowlton to faith and maturity. As they both stand holy and without blemish, without blemish, worshiping the Lord together forever. The work is the reward now and in eternity. So, so, so what a shame that, that, that anyone who names the name of Christ would, 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 would think, man, my career is just not fulfilling. Are you serious? <laughs> are you serious? I mean, we, we, we are looking for something that we were wired for outside of the realm in which we were wired for it. We were wired for fulfillment within the fellowship of God doing His work. Now, we do it in the arena of our career, in the arena of our homes, in the arena of our neighborhoods, but that's not our, that's not our vocation. Our vocation is this holy work of pursuing holiness and pursuing ministry in the fellowship of God and the saints, and the work is the reward. So let us follow the lead of the apostles and let us follow the lead of Christ, saying these words all the way. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Let's pray. Father, what a great kindness You have shown us. Not only to to save us, but then to allow us to be participants in your work. What a further kindness that you are so faithful to wake us out of our slumbers as we uh, are so we are so slow to walk in, in the light of the truth, and we we turn back to our old ways of thinking. We adopt the thinking of the world. We tend, Lord, to look to the world for what would fulfill us, what would be meaningful in this life. And, and of course, inevitably, we find it to be lacking. So we thank you, Lord, for turning our eyes to the truth. And, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to keep our eyes on the truth. That you would reorient our thinking on this issue. That we would see ourselves as followers of Christ and priests in your kingdom, tasked with pursuing holiness and pursuing ministry, we would see our entire lives as tasked with facilitating the worship of others. And that in that glorious work, we would find true fulfillment as you've wired us for. Lord, help us to do it well. Help us to do it faithfully wherever you've put us, whatever career you've put us in, whatever home you've put us in. But Lord, help us to think rightly about who we are and what you've called us to do. We thank you for it. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.